Welcome to the One Player Podcast. I'm your host, Julius Besser, and this is episode 108. Ah, Warhammer! I don't get it. I, it's stupid. It's a point. It's stupid. Are you, like, being beat over the head with a Warhammer, and I'm that's like, your cry of pain? You know, I'm, a, I'm an ogre or something like that, or an orc. Do orcs talk? Some do. Oh, okay. All right, and so you're screaming your battle cry, and your battle cry is Warhammer. Yes. Exactly. See? It makes sense. That is a very strange sense <laughs> that it makes. I don't know that it really does make sense, but it apparently makes you happy, so... This is going in the end show. <laughs> this dumb conversation we're having about this dumb intro. Because it is terrible intro. <laughs> anyway. Oh! As people, hi everybody. Hey, how you doing? Welcome to the One Player Podcast. It's been a while. We've uh, we've been off, and then we had a recording goof all last week, and and here we are. Yeah, we should probably say our names too. This is Julius, and Albert's and I'm here. Albert Height. And yes, we did have a recording goof. Well, the, the, we missed a couple weeks. We missed one week because of Jen Kent, which I hope you attended, Albert. Oh and then God. last week we were just having computer issues. I was even I was barely able to do Jen Kent because we were painting my daughter's room that weekend. My, my, Barely able to do Jen Kent. I'm insulted, uh, Albert. So was I. My wife decided it'd be a really good idea to to paint my daughter's room. She was really into the idea, so she she bought a bunch of paint, started, and then handed over the project. Go. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I guess I'll paint now. Nice. So I spent the next few days painting, and then we needed to go to IKEA a couple hours away in Charlotte and buy a loft bed for my daughter. And then I spent the week the next day setting that up. So yeah. Been busy. <laughs> yeah, we're about to get an IKEA here in Memphis. I'm Are excited. You? I'm immediately, I'm immediately going to go buy some bookshelves for my games. Nice. <laughs> yeah, I, I wish our IKEA was closer than two hours. No, ours is going to be like ten minutes away. It's going to be great. Nice. <laughs> All right. So, um, we have tons to talk about. We should start with the news. Do you have any news today? Well, did you see anything interesting looking at you about uh, Gen Con releases? Anything out there? Mm, no, I totally missed that. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I think so. Mm. I mean, I know that in Gen Con there was the Lord of the Rings, um, I forget what they call it, the fellowship event sort of thing where they, they have a deck they release every year. And that happened. And that, well, not that it matters as much here, but it supported up to 12 players, which would have been pretty neat. That's about the only thing cool. I know about Gen Con this year. <laughs> I heard two things coming out of Gen Con. Um, one, I heard about the next Oniverse game, Nautilion. Oh, yes. That's right. That looks neat. I I think that one looks neat. When I first read the description, honestly, it sounded kind of dull. But then I, I went online and found some pictures. Or somebody else found pictures, and I had looked at them. And it actually looks much more interesting now. And now it makes a lot more sense. And that looks neat. It looks like it'll be a fun game. I'm, I'm not quite sure I get 
the full challenge of it because a lot of it seems like it's going to tie in. But the idea in Nautilion is that you get dice, you get three dice, and there's the Nautilion and the Phantom Submarine and the Dark House. I'm not sure what the Dark House does. But the idea is is that you want to roll the dice and then you assign each die to one of those three ships. And the goal of the game is to have the Nautilion advance all the way towards the Happy Isles uh, and not meet up with the Phantom Submarine. Yep. And then so each turn you roll three dice, you assign one to to the sub, to your submarine, one to the Phantom, and one to the Dark House, I believe? Mm-hmm. And don't know how that works exactly, but I'm guessing, you know, each turn you really want to, to manage how how it affects the game, right? And uh, and I bet you every time you want to sign them all to your ship, but you can't. It sounds like, and you pick up crew along the way, and you put the crew in your vessel, and the other ship eats the crew, and somehow the crew, I guess, interacts with the dice and lets you have different powers and do different things. I mean, the honest truth is I don't really understand all the mechanics. I only understand the very basic idea, but I'm excited to hear about more. You know, the Oniverse games have been pretty good so far, mm-hmm. so hopefully we'll figure out more about that one. Yeah. Yep. I'm looking forward to hearing more, and it sounds like it'll be ready really soon. I mean, there's already pictures of what it looks like already, prototypes and all that. So, Well, I think it's due out to release at Essen. Okay. But I think that they were talking about it at Gen Con. Yeah, and Essen's just around the corner, right? Just two months at this point. Yes. Well, I mean, there's a bunch. There's two other things that I'm really looking for at Essen. The Oracle of Delphi, which is not solo-friendly, and A Feast for Odin, which is the next Uwe game, which is solo-friendly. Mm, okay. I haven't heard but, of either one. I have not been able to keep up with, with uh, the cons lately at all and the upcoming releases. Well, I don't think that either of those were mentioned at the con. I just happen to know about them because the first one is Stefan Feld, who is probably my... The, the game designer we play the most of. Hmm, okay. So. And then we don't... I, I don't actually have any Uwe games in my collection, so I want to get Feast of Odin so that I have some. Really? None at all? <laughs> None at all. I don't have anything. I've played them. Not even Bonanza? I've played all of them. I've played... I think I've played all of them. Okay. I'd have to go through and make sure. But I think I've played all the Uwe games. But I don't own any. And I want to own some. Mm-hmm. Good idea. So, there you go. And then the other game that was at Gen Con that I'm also very excited for is Terraforming Mars by Stronghold Games. And have you heard about this one? Mm, I don't think so. This is a action selection game where you get a hand of cards, and each of those cards can let you do something different to terraform Mars. And the goal of the game is to terraform Mars, to make Mars habitable. So you have to add water and change the temperature and add oxygen to the planet so that it has an atmosphere. And whoever has done the most to render the planet hospitable when the planet becomes hospitable is going to win the game. And it plays, I think it's one to four. Scratch that. It's one to five. And it comes with nice cards and you get chits. And so you have different um, uh, corporation cards, which lets you have different sort of abilities and things going on. And there's a solo mode for the game that is, from what I hear, only part of the game. But it's a pretty good part of the game. It It is the corporation part of the game where you're trying to use all the corporation cards to continue to terraform. And I was watching about the basic game because I didn't see anybody demoing the solo game. Um, but I was watching about the basic game at Gen Con. It looks really interesting. I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to that one, too. Hmm, okay. Neat. Yeah, I, I want to start... I should start checking out the the... 
the SN releases and all that. Because that always looks neat. I'm sure we'll talk about it once we get back mm-hmm. to it. Yeah, maybe maybe next month we should have an SN chat. Upcoming games in general. I kind of just did. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, but there's such... I mean, how about RoboRace? You didn't talk about RoboRace. I have no idea what that yeah, is. Yeah, I am either, but I'm looking through the... SN Geek List, Preview Geek List, and I saw that one. Okay, well. <laughs> maybe we will talk about yeah, it. maybe we will. Maybe we won't. Ooh, we'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've got a piece of news. You remember a couple months ago we talked about Castle Panic? Yes. There's another expansion coming out for that in November. So right after us. Yep. This expansion is a, it's called the, I believe it's called Siege Weapons. That might not be the exact title. But in this expansion there are now Siege Weapons. So you got the monsters probably setting up ballistas and stuff, and and then you get things to defend with also, like you could build an army and, and things like that. And it looks like it's another small expansion, um. So it's probably gonna be about fifteen dollars for this one. I, I look forward to that. That looks like it'll be interesting. Add a lot more variety again. Neat, neat, very cool. Did you hear about the uh, Fantasy Flight uh, uh, releasing Arkham Horror card game? I did the hear LCG. about that one. Okay. But I that never played neat. much of the... I mean, it sounds like it was very familiar to the Lord of the Rings living card game. And I never played much of that one, so it didn't really pique my interest. Although I hear that you've played a lot of that one. I have played a ton of that. I think I've played over 150 games of it at this point. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, <laughs> a lot. But the this one seems like it'll be similar, right? In that it's cooperative. But but instead, here you only have one character. Instead of like in, Arc- in a Lord of the Rings, you play up to three characters. You control three heroes. So here you're playing as a individual with a getting cards that affect his psyche and getting equipment and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It, it looks really interesting and you're fighting monsters and, you know, it's similar but it's not exactly the same as Lord of the Rings. So it should be should be neat. I believe that's also going to be released in November. So right after us. I don't know if I want to get that because I don't think I want to get into another LCG kind of game. Because that's just probably too much. Or you can always try playing together the Arkham Horror game and the Lord <laughs> of the Rings game and have a lot of fun. That'd be neat, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you could, could go mad already in, in uh, Middle Earth. But, you know, the the Lord of the Rings game is, it seems like they're already, or maybe maybe it's not the right way to say it, but they're, they're sort of stretching the, the limits of the Lord of the Rings franchise in that they're now going into areas that you never really cover in the books or didn't cover too much. Like the the last expansion they released, it's still ongoing, I guess. You you're now traveling along the coast on ships, which is just very different from from the stuff you read in the Lord of the Rings, I think. Um, so maybe it's possible that franchise is coming to an end, or they're they're planning to get ready for when it ends, and they want to get Arkham Horror as a cooperative game ready. Who knows? I think it's always hard to be able to know what it is that Fantasy Flight thinks is going to continue on with their stuff. They yeah, really but. It- it's fun to speculate. True. <laughs> and maybe we'll do a bit more of that later on. Yeah, there you go. Spoilers. <laughs> so, so yeah, so that's coming out. I'm, I'm excited about it. I don't know if I'll get into it or not. Um, I definitely like Arkham Horror. But speaking of Gen Con stuff, I hear that you didn't really attend so much of Gen Cant. No, I never had time. I was so busy that weekend. I had thought I was going to participate in it, but... um. Life got in the way. Well, fortunately, I'm glad that we did have quite a good turnout for Gen Cant this year. Yeah, um, we had about a thousand entries wow. of people who said they played games, 
and that was about 150 different unique people at least um, who had participated in our little uh, unconvention, our solitaire unconvention. <laughs> and that's a pretty good turnout. I'm pretty happy about that. Yeah, that's a lot of people. That's neat. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so, so you gave away a lot of prizes and everything. We did. All of our prizes have been um, picked. Uh, I think that the publishers are sending out the prizes to everyone who uh, should have had one. And yeah, we we did get quite a couple prizes going on in it. Nice. Okay. That was fun. Yeah, there, I saw that there's a pre-registration geek list and everything. That that was really neat. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. I'm sorry you weren't able to attend. I know we yeah. have a couple ideas already for things we want to do different next year, and we're definitely always looking for feedback about that. But yeah, I was very happy with it. It was a lot of fun. I like uh, I like hanging out with everyone, really connecting with all the solitaire people. You start to see some names continue to pop up and you know start connecting names to faces, things like that. It's fun. Mm-hmm. Yep. It, it really is. Speaking of next year, I've already gotten some some ideas, some suggestions for next year's Challenge Coin campaign. Yeah, like a dice bag, maybe? Like a dice bag, yes. That was a really good idea. I'd like to make a dice bag, something with a logo. I have no idea how to source that sort of thing, though. Well, I mean, I know that there are people who custom make these standing dice bags. I know that someone local here actually got a custom standing dice bag for um, DC Dice Masters. Mm-hmm. And it's a nice dice bag. It stands the way it's stitched. It stands up, and on the outside is like comic book characters, and on the inside is this pretty blue cloth. And if you're not playing Dice Masters, you swap it. It it's reversible. Yeah. So then you can just have blue if you're not playing Dice Masters. Um, it's pretty. It's very nice. It's very sturdy. That's cool. Okay. Yeah. You know, I've made my own dice bags. I got a sewing machine, and I, every once in a while, I pull it out and make dice bags for games or tile bags. You don't want me to make two or three hundred bags though <laughs> the campaign will never finish that right <laughs> well i'm glad we don't have to worry about this campaign finishing well i mean i'm still having a little bit of trouble um at this point most u.s folks should have uh, their their stuff their coins and dice um I, sh- I sent out the last batch the last big big batch on thursday night mm-hmm so I think everybody should have it or by tomorrow. Um, I'm still dealing with the international orders, which have turned out to be more complicated than I thought they were going to be. I got a new printer because I have to print out my own postage. Well, I don't have to, but when I went to the post office, the person obviously didn't want to do it at the post office. So, so she looked at them. my... Yeah, well, I don't blame them. But, you know, she looked at my customs forms and immediately started finding things with them that was wrong and said, no, you're going to have to go do this again. You have to go fix it. And she said, go and do it online and use stamps.com. And so I went ahead and did that. I mean, you know, it is cheaper. So so maybe it is a good choice. And it'll probably get done faster this way because I just don't have the time to go to the post office lately. But yeah, so I should start those again tomorrow or the next day. Start sending them out. And by the end of the week, I should have them all shipped out. And then I've got post Kickstarter orders. A bunch of a few people have already paid theirs before I ordered the stuff from the from the manufacturers. So I need to ship those out also. And then once all that's fulfilled and everything's done, then I got a bunch more post Kickstarter orders to to take care of. Though at this point, if you haven't ordered anything, if you didn't sign up for dies or coins, and you think you want some, I should still have some leftovers. I would uh, go to BGG and sign up for that. 
So when are you going to do the year two Kickstarter? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I guess it'll be around the same time of year. Maybe I'll start a little bit earlier. I did it, I think, around the beginning of May this year. And May is such a bad month for me for doing stuff like that. <laughs> so maybe, don't do it in May. <laughs> maybe I should do. Maybe I should do it the month before that. So that May it's quiet and there's very little going on. You mean April? Yes, do it well, in April. If you do it in April, wouldn't it mean that May is when you have to send everything out? No, because if I do the Kickstarter in April, you then wait two weeks for the funds to show up. Then you order everything from the pub from the manufacturers, and then you wait again. Okay. So, so that'd be relatively easy, other okay. than pu- putting together all the uh, all the surveys and all that. Okay, I suppose that you are the experienced Kickstarter <laughs> creator, so just, I'll leave that just up barely. to you. <laughs> so yeah, and I'll I'll see about making dice bags. But anyway, I mean, we should finish this year before we start next year. Lame. What else? <laughs> Do we have any more news? I've got none. Yes, there's a podcast called Once Upon a Time or Upon a Die. Have you heard of that one? No. It is a solitaire podcast. It's a new podcast. Sort of it's sort of new. It actually started apparently last year and and the guy did a few shows. Um I don't remember his name. Xavier is his last name. He he did a few shows and then he stopped and he just started again recently. It's a really neat show though, because what he does is he'll he'll talk about a game. And he'll write a story, or he'll he'll narrate a story about the game, and then about how the gameplay actually went. You know, telling the the story of the character and all that, and then stop in the middle of the story here and there to describe how the rules relate to the story. That's a really neat way to learn about the game. So you know, like he, the first episode, I think he's talking about Arkham Horror. So I don't remember all the details now, but you may, may be talking about the character, and he went and fought some monsters and. It worked out really badly, and he lost some sanity, and then he'll stop and say, okay, and so here, you know, to fight the monster, you roll dice, and you're trying to get successes and whatnot. And then he'll go back, pick up with the story again. So it's really neat. It's a really, really fun show. I highly recommend it. Cool. Maybe I'll have to give it a listen. <laughs> well, should, they, should we uh, jump onto something just a little different then? Go for it. Okay. Maybe we should listen to uh, Chris. He's, he's going to be talking about a game called Hot Air Solitaire. Hi, welcome to PMP Patrol. I'm Chris, and today I'm going to be talking about Hot Air Solitaire by Michael Askew. Hot Air Solitaire is an older print-and-play game. This was released in 2008, and back then print-and-play probably wasn't as big of a thing as it is now. There wasn't as big of a print-and-play community on BoardGameGeek. Uh, I don't think there was a category for print-and-play games even on BoardGameGeek yet, so it was a little harder to find these games and... Um, really get into them. There were a, definitely a few of them out there. Zombie in My Pocket was out at that time. Cheese Chasers was out at that time, but really we hadn't quite seen the explosion that we had yet. So this is one of the early uh, forebears into the print and play community that we enjoy today. So in Hot Air Solitaire, you're piloting a hot air balloon over a landscape and trying to land in one of three landing zones and the farther out you're able to land the more points you get at the end of the game. So the game is set up on a grid and there's no board so you're kind of imagining this grid but it's about 12 columns by four rows and that is the area that your hot air balloon can fly in. 
The bottom row is always the ground, and then the next three rows are air, and they're different heights that you can fly your balloon at. When you set up the game, the first thing you do is place out your start tile, and then your three ending tiles, and they are worth one point, two point, or three points. So you'll place the one that has the highest number of points the farthest distance away. And then in between that, you're going to put eight ground tiles face down, so you don't know what's going to be on those. So you don't place any air tiles. You just have the very beginning, you have your eight ground tiles uh, surrounded by your start and your finish tiles, and your hot air balloon will be on the start tile. You'll also have a balloon marker, and there's two dials that go with it, one that indicates damage to your balloon and one that indicates your fuel. So both of these start at seven, and they'll be reduced as you take damage or use fuel. So to move through the game, you have to spend fuel. Uh, you'll, you'll spend fuel to rise your balloon up into the air or even just to keep it at the same level. Um, there's a gust of wind that's continually blowing you uh, across the board, so you don't need to worry too much about moving from left to right on the board, although you do a little, and I'll explain that more. But basically the game works by spending fuel to lift your balloon. You'll spend two fuel to lift your balloon up one height and you'll automatically go one space to the right. Or if you want to stay at the same height that you are, you can reduce your fuel just by one instead of two, and then you'll move to the right but on the same level. So every time that you move up in the air or move through the air, you'll just place an air tile on the grid uh, where you are. So you kind of make up a grid you know, there, there's no board, you're just laying tiles, so you'll place the tile at approximately, you know, the first or the second or the third level, and there's not that many above ground, so it's pretty easy to always tell where you are. As you move across, you can also descend, and that won't cost any fuel at all. You'll just move one space to the right and move down one layer. Obviously, you can't do that if you're already on the ground, or, or you know, the ground layer, but you can do that as you're coming into a land or if you're already on the third layer and you need to save fuel and you have some room to to go down. Uh, obviously managing fuel is a pretty big part of this game. You only start the game with seven fuels and it costs two fuels every time you want to move up one space and you've got to go across essentially eight to ten columns depending on which which target zone you're trying to land for. So as you go through the sky or even if you're floating along ground level you're going to run into things that can hurt you or things that can help you or some things that don't do either thing at all. They're, they're, they're just neutral, like a cloud or something. So when you move into a new tile, you'll, you'll place that tile on the board, drawing from the stack, and that tile will show something like damage or, or fuel or a telescope that lets you look further and see what tiles are coming up. So your damage tiles are going to be things like if you're on the ground level, there'll be mountains, houses, buildings, things like that. If you're in the air, you're, you'll also have damage tiles. And they're birds, lightning, uh, you can get hit by an airplane, and all of these things cause different levels of damage. And if your hot air balloon is ever damaged so badly um, that you've used up all your points, you'll lose the game immediately. But you can also find things that will help you. You can find fuel, you can find repair kits, uh, that you can use to uh, repair the damage to your balloon. And finding these things is really integral to making it across the board. If you have a bad luck of the draw and you don't find any fuel, you're probably going to run out of fuel before you can make it to the end, and you'll just lose the game.
There's also some bonus tiles like telescopes and, and uh, they call it the looking glass uh, or the visibility tile where you can see the tiles that are ahead of you. So you could see, like you'll, you'll basically you'll lay out the tiles in the grid formation so you can pick which one you want to land on. So if there was a fuel tile that gave you three extra fuels in the space to the right, uh, one layer above you, then you'd know it was worth it to spend the fuel to get up there because you're going to acquire three more fuel and be able to use those. And you can also see that, oh, there's an airplane. I definitely want to go down or you know stay at the same level, whatever you need to do to avoid that airplane and avoid taking the damage. So those kind of tiles that allow you to see what's coming up are really, really helpful as well and help reduce the, uh, the luck of the draw a little bit. After you get across the board, you'll need to land your balloon safely into one of the landing zones. If you land in the first zone, you get one point. If you land in the, the last zone, you get three points. Uh, the middle zone's worth two. Uh, and if you don't make it there, you don't score any points. You'll also add to your final landing position your total fuel points and your total damage points. So the, the less damage that you're able to take or the more repairs you're able to do and the amount of fuel you end up with at the end of the game will all add into your score. So if you finish the race on the two spot and you have the structural integrity of your balloon is at five and your fuel is at two, you would add the five, the two for fuel, and then the two for your landing zone together and you end the game with nine points. And that's about all there is to it. This is a really fast playing game. You can play the game in less time than it took me to talk about it. It's, I've played games in you know three minutes. You can shuffle the tiles again, set it up, play this game three or four times in a 10-minute period. It's really not that hard to do and gives you a good sense of, of all the tiles. Actually, there's a ton of tiles in this game. There's more than I've even talked about, uh, which is cool because it adds a little bit of variability from one game to another you're probably going to see totally different tiles and be dealing with totally different things so you you have the same game mechanics but you know maybe you're dealing with a very damage heavy uh, scenario I had one game where I was able to see visibility uh, a couple times in the game you know I was able to just sail through exactly on the path I wanted and use a little bit more strategy than you might normally use but generally this is a very luck based quick playing game even with those tiles, there's not a lot of strategy because if you can see what's coming up, your choices are kind of obvious sometimes. Uh, but what did I think about the game? It's fun. I, I like I playing it. It's, it's a little bit more of a time killer. This is something you're going to play pretty quickly. You know, if you have nothing to do for five minutes and you're, you've got it handy in your backpack or something, you could pull this out and play it really quickly. So it's a fun way to kill time, but it's I don't think it's something that you're going to want to play over and over and over many, many times. I also found the game started to get a little bit too easy. Maybe I just had several lucky games in a row, but I found there's an awful lot of repair tiles. There's an awful lot of fuel tiles. So even when I was taking damage, I was able to fix my balloon and refuel and land in that three target zone with plenty of points on my fuel and my damage tracker pretty easily, pretty consistently. And that starts, you know, that, that's not a lot of fun if, if the challenge of the game is going away. Uh, for a luck 
heavy game like this, the luck definitely seems to be on the side of the player, which isn't, a, you know, a terrible thing, but it, it definitely, you know, you lose some of that challenge and, and that, you know, the interest in the game if you're winning game after game after game. I find that I'm typically scoring around 12, and, you know, I could be scoring higher, but 12 seems to be a, a pretty good average for me. And that, that, you know, that's a good score, and I don't feel a lot of drive to go back and beat it because it's just you know, can I draw luckier tiles and score one or two points more? You know, there's not a lot of, not a, not a lot of interest there. I thought the, the rule book is very short. You know, you can pick this game up quickly. It's a, actually a pocket mod rule book, so it fits on a single sheet of paper. And there's some good examples of the setup, but when I first read it, I was a little unclear like, on how you place the air tiles. I didn't know if maybe I should be filling in like every time I moved, if I was meant to be filling in all of the, the grid, or if I was just meant to be placing the tile kind of on an imaginary grid with nothing underneath it, which I think is actually how you are supposed to play it. But the rule book doesn't have a good example of play. It has a, a really nice setup example, and then it just starts kind of describing what the tiles do. And I felt it was a little weak on, you know, really getting you going. I, I actually came in and watched a play a video from the designer to really help me get going on the game and say, okay, here's what these do. And that was more helpful to me than the rule book, which I think the rule book could actually use a little bit of work just to get people playing the game a little bit faster. I also think there's a few uh, holes in the rules. I, I've bumped into a few scenarios where you know, a tile draw didn't work with the rules of the game. For example, if you're in the top row, so you're 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 on the, as high as you can be, occasionally you'll draw a tile that has a draft of wind that pushes you one direction or another, and, and one of those will push you up. You're not allowed to go higher than three rows, so if you draw that up tile and you're on row three, you know, do you just ignore the tile? Do you just move on without it? Or, or you know, does that break the rules and allow you to go higher? The rule book doesn't say anything about that, and you know, granted, this is such a fast-playing game, it doesn't really matter. You can just play again, but that is still kind of annoying to bump into that kind of thing. So the theme of this game works pretty well. You're flying in a hot air balloon and, you know, moving it up and down and encountering birds and mountains and things that you have to avoid. But some of the, the theme is a little odd. For example, it's not uncommon to be flying high above the ground and you encounter fuel, which I understand is necessary because there's not enough fuel at the beginning of the game to complete the game. You need to find fuel as you're going through in order to win or repairs. But thematically, it's it's weird to you know be 200 feet above the ground or whatever, and you find fuel or a repair kit, and you're fixing your balloon in flight. You know I, I understand why it needs to be there for game mechanics, but thematically, it's kind of weird to be doing this balloon flight and refueling and fixing your balloon while you're, you know, way above the ground. Again, not a big deal, but thematically it's a little odd. So like I mentioned, this is a very old print-and-play game. It came out several years ago. The designer has gone on to design several other games. Council of Verona came out a little while ago. He released For the Win, which is one of my favorite Hive-style games. I, I really enjoy that one. So this is kind of like peeking in on an established designer's earlier work, maybe kind of a, a rough draft of a game. The files on BoardGameGeek actually are marked as prototype, but they've been up there for over eight years now, so maybe maybe that's what we're going to get. I don't know if it's going to come out of prototype stage. It's very interesting to see that, but it still doesn't necessarily make a game uh, that I'd want to play many times. I mean, I'd certainly rather play uh, one of his later games than pull this one out many times. 
As far as the print and play aspect goes, this is a tile game, so you're going to be cutting up, uh, I think, about five sheets of tiles. There's one sheet of ground tile and four sheets of, of air tiles. And then you've got your balloon and your damage trackers, which are, you know, just kind of big, big counters. You can just cut circles around them. Uh, so overall, it's pretty easy to make. You're just mostly cutting, cutting up these square tiles. You do need to provide some kind of token for your balloon uh, that you can place on the tiles to kind of remember where you are. This is similar, again, to Zombie in My Pocket, where maybe you could remember what tile your, your character or your balloon is standing on, but it's easier if you have a little, a little marker of some sort to show this is where I am. You know, you get blown back and forth and, and different tiles, so you could lose track potentially of where you are. Uh, it's not always super obvious, so you'll definitely want to just provide a little cube or something that you can use for your balloon. As far as the ink use goes, the, the tiles are actually pretty low ink, so you can print this without killing up all your ink supply on your printer. There's optional backs, and these are full color, you know, blue and brown for the ground, blue for the sky. You know, these are nice to have because you, you separate the tiles out when you're setting up the game. But once you've set up the game, the ground tiles are set up and you don't ever touch them again. And your air tiles are all in a pile that you're drawing from every turn. So you're not going to be mixing them up during gameplay. So if you can keep them separate or just separate them when you're setting up the game, you don't even need to print those tile backs. They're kind of a nice to have, but you certainly don't need them to play the game. So you could save a little ink that way if you wanted to. So I certainly didn't talk about everything in this game. Um, there's a few other tiles. Um, you can draw, for example, a shield that will protect you when you want to. So if you encountered some damage later on in the game, you could hold on to that shield. And if you hit an airplane you know, that causes a lot of damage, you could use your shield at that point and say, I'm not taking any damage. So there's a few things like that, you know, that make the game a little bit more strategic and interesting. I think this is worth a play if you're looking for something quick. If you want a little uh, time killer that you can keep in a pocket or, you know, in a, in a pouch in your backpack or something so that you can just play it when you've got, you know, five minutes while you're in between meetings or, or, or waiting for a class to start or something like that, you could pull this out and play it in three minutes just to kill a little time. So overall, I'd say this is a fun game, but not necessarily an essential one uh, that needs to be in every collection. So you can now reach me at my new One Player Podcast email, chris at oneplayerpodcast.com, or you can just reach me on BoardGameGeek, as always. Uh, you can geek mail chanson2794. Uh, in other news, the uh, Print and Play Solitaire Design Contest that I host is still going on on BoardGameGeek right now. It's uh, in the voting stage right now, so if you're able to come and print some games and give them a try, I know the designers would appreciate any feedback, and it's fun to jump in there and vote for your favorites, so I hope that lots of people will come and participate in that. That's a Board Game Geek thread. Just search for Solitaire Print and Play Design Contest, and it'll pop right up. In the future, I'll be talking more about the games that were entered into the contest in detail. I don't want to do it yet because I don't want to influence any votes, but I'll, I've been playing a lot of those games recently, and I'm definitely going to come back and talk about them more in a future episode. So I'll talk to you guys next time. What have you been playing lately? Not much that I <laughs> can... Nothing really separate. <laughs> nothing really separate from what I'm going to talk about for the review. <laughs> Gosh, you know, I've barely played anything lately. I think I played, um, what did I play? The I played the Bloody Inn the other night. I played it once and I liked it. It was fun. 
it seemed a little faster than I expected for a solitaire game, but I'm not familiar with the Bloody End. So this is a game. It's got really unique art. It's sort of like these creepy watercolors of different characters. In this game, you're an innkeeper in France, I think in the 18th century. And guests come in and stay in your hotel, and you kill these guests for their money. And then once you kill the guests, you then have to bury them, and that's when you collect your money. And hopefully you don't get caught doing this. This is apparently actually based on a true story. Um, Somebody was doing this in the 18th century, and they eventually got caught. And so it's a neat game. You actually, it's a hand management game. You uh, you buy cards from the table with the cards in your hand, but then depending on the type of card, sometimes you could keep the cards you spend to buy, and then you build these annexes, which I don't know exactly what that means, I guess. But these cards that you build then will give you bonuses throughout the game. Like it might make it cheaper to buy a card, an accomplice, or to bury somebody, or they might give you extra money in the game. Um, then you kill the people that are staying in the rooms, You and then you also have to bury them. And you don't kill all the guests, you just kill some, because you know if you killed everybody, that you'd get caught. <laughs> <laughs> and only killing some, you're not going to get caught. <laughs> That's the hope. That's the hope. But it, it's a neat game. The artwork is very nice. It's very cool. It's very unique. And it's actually sort of a lighthearted look at it. It makes the, the game seem sort of absurd. Or the idea. And so it's not as grim as you might think it is. I mean, it's still grim, don't get me wrong. But it's not as grim. So I played that. Um, Gosh, I played Lord of the Rings a few weeks ago. I haven't played anything else that I can think of solo. Yeah, school, I mean, school started uh, last week. And so suddenly life is super busy again. Dum, dum, dum. Yeah, I don't get that. I don't get that cycle at my job, you know. (laughs) <laughs> gosh the oh i've got a giveaway you remember last episode it was a while ago but i think i remember last episode <laughs> we talked about a um, samurai spirit right and it was on sale at barnes and noble well, i went to barnes and noble and they had a copy at 75 percent off so i picked it up and so i'd like to give it away to the listeners Neat. um mm-hmm. so i mean it's a, it's a japanese theme how about maybe the listeners that want this game send us a haiku and we'll pick the best haiku. Oh, boy. Yeah. Do they have to write the haiku, or can they find it just anywhere on the internet? It's got to be an original haiku. Oh, you're making it really hard. <laughs> That's a tough one, man. It, it, it might be. But, you know, most of our contests, as few as we have, don't get many entries, so that's okay. So you're saying that anybody who, <laughs> anybody who writes this haiku has a really good chance of winning. Is that what you're I, telling me? That's what I think, yes. <laughs> we shall see. Now, so, so I've set the bar low. All right. When do they have to get to you by? Let's see. Um, we could give it a little more time. Mid-September. So September 15th is the due date? Yep. There you go. September 15th. Excellent. Last chance to submit a haiku. So get a haiku, mail it in to albert at oneplayerpodcast.com by September 15th. And you may win a copy of Samurai Spirit. Sounds neat. Well, Albert, mm-hmm. we've talked about what we were playing last time. What are we playing? What are we talking about today? So today we're talking about Warhammer. <laughs> if you didn't have enough of it before, you probably have now. Oh boy. <laughs> oh, that's great. 
<laughs> Anywho, well, we're not just talking about Warhammer. We are talking about Warhammer Quest, the adventure card game. That's right. Okay. Now then, I don't think you've played this before, Albert. Is that correct? Have, yeah, that's right. I have not played it. I've been curious about it, but I haven't picked it up at all. Okay. Warhammer Quest, the adventure card game, and I'm going to just abbreviate that as Warhammer for the remainder of our discussion here. Uh, and hopefully you will refrain from doing any more shouting. <laughs> That's screaming, actually. <laughs> is a card game adventure. And it's really designed to be a campaign game. So you have a set of quests and you'll move through the quests. The, there's a one campaign in the box and one long quest in the box. That's six quests. And so you do each of the five quests in the campaign in order, and you get more powerful and you keep your stuff as you go through it. Um, the box comes with four heroes. Uh, let's see if I can remember all four of heroes. There's, let's, let's talk about them in terms of their archetypes. There is the warrior archetype, there's the dwarf archetype, there's the archer archetype, and then there's the magician archetype, the fire mage. And so those are the four warriors. There is actually two mini expansions that are out for the game. Um, one is the troll warrior arc, uh, and the other is the witch hunter, which is not a witch. It's someone, both of those use slightly more complicated mechanics in their cards, um, but they're both interesting expansions, but they're just the hero cards, they're everything you need for the hero cards. A hero starts the game with your, basic hero card which is which shows you how much health you have and the amount of health you have is based on the number of heroes that are playing the game so you can have two three or four heroes playing the game when you're playing it solitaire you'll control two three or four heroes just as if there were two three or four players playing and you can pick however many you want there's no specific solitaire design here you just control multiple heroes okay so the amount of health that you get changes based upon how many heroes there are. So you get more health if there are less heroes playing the game. So that's your hero card. And then you get your four action cards. So there's an attack action card, a rest action card, an aid action card, and a explore and explore action card. And so each character has those four types of action cards, but they differ for what each one of those do. Um, and then there are also going to be enemy cards and location cards. Enemy cards will be like a goblin warrior or a troll or a skeleton, these sort of things. And they're just cards and they'll be in a center shadow zone and they'll be in your engagement zone, essentially. So they come up and are engaged with you, they're fighting with you, or they're hanging out back in the background. Those are the enemy cards. And then the location cards are these cards that govern where you're currently at. So you might currently be in the sewer depths, or you might be in the abandoned troll fortress, or you might be in the stairways of doom, or wherever it is that it is that you are. And so that location usually has some special um, rules about it. It's like the stairway of doom. You may lose on your explore a little bit more. Now that I've told you what those types of cards are, let me tell you about the different actions. So I can explain to you how those interact. The attack action in general will let you deal damage to the enemies. 
the explore action will let you put explore tokens on the location cards. The rest action will let you heal and take off wounds from your guy. And the aid action will let you put success tokens on the other characters. The way each of these four basic actions works is by rolling dice. Every player gets a certain amount of dice. You can have up to three dice, depending upon what it is that lets you. And when you start off the game, one of your actions will let you roll one die for successes. And the other three of your actions let you roll two. And you may be able to level up and get access to more dice. When you roll those dice, the dice are custom dice. They'll have a shield, they'll have a star, and they'll have these crossed axes. The crossed axes are success symbols. So for each success symbol in one of those actions, it lets you do the thing. So it lets you deal damage, one point of damage for success, heal a point of damage for success, an explore token for success, or a success token for success. Before you roll your dice, if you have any success tokens on your cards, you can put those forward and say, I want to you know, declare, I'm using these success tokens, and they're extra successes towards your extra thing. So if you stored a success token from someone else's aid action, or you got a success token some other way, you can get an automatic success and an attack action, for example, to deal damage to an enemy, make sure that you kill them. So those are your hero dice. The star on the hero dice is an exploding success, if you're familiar with that term. Essentially, it gives you a success token, and then you get to reroll the die. So even if you have only one die, if you keep getting that exploding success, you may end up with four, five, six, seven, eight successes. And the current reigning champion from our games is rolling eight successes with one die. Wow. Yeah, it was pretty incredible. It was way overkill, because <laughs> when you're attacking, typically you have to choose what you're targeting. And he was like, I only have one die. I'm going to target the this one little piddly guy just to get him out of the way. And then he rolled eight successes. He's like, oh, man, <laughs> that was a waste. Wow, that's amazing. But yeah, he just kept rolling it and rolling it and rolling it and rolling it. And he's like, oh, man. Anyway, so, and then the shield token, the shield side, I'll get back to in just a second. You can have up to three enemies engaged with you. That means that they're right in front of you. For each enemy engaged with you, whenever you're rolling the hero dice, you have to roll an enemy dice. So if you have one enemy engaged with you, you have to roll one enemy die. And the enemy dice are black dice. They're also custom. The enemy dice have blank sides on some of the sides. And some of the other sides have a little scratch symbol, which is an enemy attack. When you roll an enemy attack, you look across your enemies that are engaged with you, and each of the cards has their attack value on it in a little blue um, diamond shape. So you look and see which one deals the most damage, and when you roll the enemy attack, the one that deals the most damage gets to damage you. And you can reduce that for every shield symbol you have. So let's say that you're up against an orc boy. An orc boy has an attack of three. If you roll that scratch symbol, it will deal three damage to you. If you rolled a shield symbol, so it would only deal two damage to you, and you take that two damage. Okay? Mm -hmm. And so, generally, each time you're taking an action, you're going to be rolling those dice. And then you get to do whatever the successes for the dice are. And each of the characters, for the basic part of their action, the rest, attack, uh, explore, and aid, all do the same thing. But, 
most of the cards let you do multiple things. So for instance, the warrior guy, he can target multiple enemies, and when he targets an extra enemy, he gets an automatic success. The fire mage can do a ranged attack, and when she heals, she also does some splash damage to people who are engaged with the person she heals, for example. So each one of their abilities differ in slight ways and make each of the characters unique when you're playing them. Um, mm-hmm. As an extra rule, when you're aiding, you can only put up to two success tokens on a card, and you can only use the success tokens on a card when you're taking that action. So you can't load up a ton of successes on your attack in order to do a really big hit. You can only add up to two successes from those success tokens. Um, now then, back to the location cards. In general, the quests require you to explore through locations. And when you take an explore action, for each success, you get to put one progress token on the explore location. In the corner of the location card is a number, let's say five or something like that. Um, When you fill up that number, once everyone has finished their turn and the enemies have taken their turn, I'll get back to the enemy turns in a sec, you'll get to explore to the next location. In general, to complete the quests, you have to go through a small deck of location cards and get to the end in order to do something at the end and beat them. So that's what the explore part is for. And as you're moving also the location cards, the effect that the location is having on you will change. And usually these are, you know, uh, usually the location effect is something that's going to cause you to think about what it is that you want to do. Even if it's just something like the, the staircase one, for example, makes you remove a progress token from your card. So when you're there, you want to try and finish off that whole area in one go before you have to remove any progress tokens. Otherwise, you're just wasting time. Mm-hmm. That, that reminds me a lot of The Lord of the Rings. Well, I mean, it is a fantasy flight game. I know that I play with some other people and they feel like a lot of this really reminds them of Imperial Assault uh, or Descent just in card form. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I have a feeling that they're probably borrowing some mechanics over from different things. Um, There's another couple extra types of cards that are involved. There are the dungeon cards. When you do an explore action, all of the card abilities will also let you draw a dungeon card. And so these dungeon cards can have different effects. Like you may end up walking into a cave-in, or you may stumble over a potion or an item or something else like that, or you may stumble into an ambush. And so these dungeon cards are an extra set of cards that every time you explore, and this is not when you finish location, when you're rolling the explore action, you also will take a dungeon card, which adds a bit of extra thing. Um, Many of the dungeon cards also will, in addition, have an icon that means get a gear card. The gear cards are these extra pieces of gear like axes or shields or armor things like that that give your character extra permanent abilities a level uh, uh, all the characters start with the ability to hold one gear and throughout the course of a campaign or the longer quest you get the ability to hold extra gear but at the start of a campaign you only get to hold one gear um Additionally, there's a set of legendary cards. For each character, they have three legendary cards, and I'll get back to legendary cards once we get back to how the campaign works. Um, 
I've covered all the components except for the wound tokens. The game comes with double-sided wound tokens with ones and threes on it. I've found personally that that's good for tracking enemy health because enemy health is usually like three, four, or one. And so it's okay to use those. I don't like using those. You're supposed to use those to also track the health on the heroes, but health and heroes can be like 20 or something like that. And trying to stack up these wound tokens can be difficult for me. So I've actually been using D6s um, to keep track mm-hmm. of health of the heroes and when we find bosses to keep track of the bosses. Okay. Yeah, twenty points with counters of one and three must be hard. Must be a pain. Yeah, I just I just don't do it. So I just bought some small D sixes in order to do it like that. Okay, following so far? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I haven't really described how you beat the game because each one of the quests has a different way of being the game. And I'm not really gonna go into each one of them. Um but when you're going through the campaign, you'll take a quest and there's a specific order to how the quest goes. And there's also, so there's level one quest, level two quests and level three quests. And there's similarly level one, two and three locations and level one, two and three enemies. So the quests will say, select these specific type of enemies. So it may be that it wants you to get a skeleton, a troll, an orc boy, a lightning archer and three open Enemies and open enemies means random level one enemies if you're on a level one quest. And is so, the ha- enemy is it really an orc boy? Yeah, there's an orc boy. That's terrible. The Why poor is that kid. Terrible? It's a boy. Yes, and you kill him. <laughs> that just seems wrong. Oh well. Anyway, no, it's really an orc boy. He but he doesn't okay. ever attack. He doesn't attack. No, because he, he's helpless and defenseless. He's just a boy. Oh, and I realized I forgot to talk about how the enemies attack, but we'll get back to that in a second. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so the quest will have you build a specific deck of enemy cards and usually a specific deck of um, location cards. And again, often like the last location is the one that you use to beat the quest. So like in the first quest, I think it's the first quest, you have to get through all four locations and then the last location you'll open up your nemesis the boss battle uh-huh. the dice have and i didn't discuss this before the enemy dice have on their last side a nemesis icon whenever you roll a nemesis icon all nemesis effects and play will trigger so in the first quest the bad guy has poisoned things and so whenever you roll nemesis the bad guy gets to do two poison two two damage he uses as poison uh-huh. on your guys and because the nemesis effects change from each quest and continue to come up during a quest, it means that the effect of the quest and the effect of the bad guy will change throughout. In addition, a quest also has peril to it. And the way it works is at the end of a round, again, after you've potentially after you've done your actions, after the enemy has done their actions, and after you've potentially explored, you'll do peril, which is a small little track on the quest sheet, which moves along. And as you hit like triggers for effects on the sheet, it'll trigger something to happen. So like let's say you hit the green spot, you have to do some extra poison damage. And then if you hit the blue spot, you do more poison damage. And if you hit the red spot, you start doing poison damage every round. So, and that peril track changes with each quest. So the effect of how things are going to happen throughout the quest keep changing in the different types of quests. Um, 
Last thing that I didn't mention is the enemy cards or the enemy, the enemy part of the round. After you've taken all of your actions, one at a time, you guys will activate, all the players will activate the enemies. And the enemies have, in the middle of their cards, just under their art, the type of actions that they get. So, for instance, they may advance, which means they move into your engagement area, they come up next to you, and they may inflict, um, which means they do damage, or they may have some other special type things on their card, which describes what they do. But the the two most common ones are advance and inflict and inflict means they do damage whatever they are so the enemy act the enemy phase is pretty fast to just simply go through all of them and do all of their things at the end of a quest if you're successful you'll often get to add something to your campaign pool even if you're unsuccessful you'll often get to add something to your campaign pool so for instance in the first quest the bad guy even if you beat him he just flees from you so he goes to your campaign pool, which means that next game, you'll have to include him. And so you'll have to fight the boss again mm. next game. If you kill him, Ouch. then he'll be dead for good. But that means that his nemesis ability also can come into the next game. So you may have two nemesis abilities in the next game. Ouch. But if you're successful, you'll typically get to add a legendary card to your campaign pool, which means that in future games, you'll be able to... Um, get one of your legendary gear cards. If you draw that gear, you can then choose a random gear card for your hero. And the, the legendary gear is cool stuff. It's some overpowered, really cool <laughs> pieces of gear that tie into your character abilities and are so much fun to have. They are really fun. <laughs> they they make so winning very you, sweet. You could end up with a few of these. You can end up with a few of these. Um, it just because of the way it's worked for the three times we've gone through the whole quest so far, it's been that one character has ended up just by luck getting all of his legendary gear, and the other characters have not really done it. Wow, okay. Just just by luck of the draw. Mm-hmm. Um then once you finish the quest, you'll get to add in the campaign pool, and then you get to do your level up stuff. There's three type of level ups things, and you can pick any two of them. The one level up you get to do is you get to increase your gear, um, your gear limit. So you start with a gear limit of one, and you just get to increase it. Now, then there's no trackers included in the game for doing that. I personally printed off some cards that I use that I just slip into the envelope with the rest of the cards for that hero to keep track of what its gear capacity is. There's a little sheet on the rule book that you can write down in the campaign log its gear capacity. There's nothing mm-hmm. to track it. I would have loved if those cards would have been included, but they weren't. Say that you. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing you can do is you can visit the blacksmith, which is you get to draw two gear cards and pick, keep one of them. So you get extra gear. The last thing is you visit the trainer, and you're probably going to do this each time. We talked about how you have those action cards, the four action cards. Um, and I forgot a very basic thing of those action cards. When, uh, when you go to the trainer, you can change in a basic action card for an advanced action card, which is a level up. It makes that action better. Mm. Mm -hmm. So for example, um, when you have the, the bright mage, the, the mage person, his attack by default on a basic version, only it targets one person. But then once he levels up, he can start targeting multiple people and do extra damage and just get cooler and roll more dice. Um, One thing I forgot to mention about those action cards, by the way, 
when you do an action, you have to tap. You have to exhaust that action. You have to turn it on its side to show that it's exhausted. Mm-hmm. Everyone has one of their action cards that causes you to unexhaust all of your other actions. So you can't just keep attack, 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 attack. You have to take the time to attack and then do the rest, for example, to untap attack and then you can do attack and then rest again and because you only get a limited number of actions each round you're going to end up not being able to do the things you want some of the time i see okay um this is a very similar type of thing to space hulk space hulk thank you appreciate Mm -hmm. that um where you also have that actions get tapped and you have to wait for them to get untapped by taking another action Okay, yeah, you know, I, I've heard it compared to Space Hulk, and now I see why. I think that is the only thing that really compares to Space Hulk. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, it's Warhammer. You want me to do the sound effect for Space Hulk? No, thank you. <laughs> okay. Space Hulk is Warhammer 40K. This is not Warhammer 40K, this is well, generic fantasy. Well, yeah, but it's also Warhammer, right? It's just 40,000 years later. I suppose. Um, I mean, if you're not familiar with the Warhammer universe, it's really just generic fantasy. I think it's like, to a certain degree, silly. It's supposed to be like chaotic and silly. I don't think it takes itself very seriously. Um, yeah, I've gotten the same impression because I know there's some Warhammer games that are are just kind of goofy, especially when it comes to dealing with the orcs. What do you mean? Um, there's some game where the orcs tend to fight a lot and and don't get along with each other and sort of thing. And so I think they're just not taken seriously, it seems. That's the impression I've gotten. I don't really know Warhammer very well. I don't know Warhammer very well either. I mean, I don't get very much of that. I don't get... It's not like trying to be silly. It just doesn't take itself seriously. There's there's a difference between the two of them. Mm-hmm. It's not like we're trying to create an excellent narrative with a, you know, a world that all makes sense together. Like, if you step into something like Pathfinder... The world all makes sense together. There's a deep narrative and there's a story that all makes sense. Whereas if you step into the world of Warhammer, at random, like you're going to have a person say, you're the devil. And you're like, wait, 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 why did the guy just do that? Oh, just, he just did. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I don't know. I I get the impression for that, at least for Warhammer 40k, they do take that one very seriously. There's a lot of fiction for it and all that. I don't really I don't, know. I don't, I don't know, know that much about it. To me, it's just generic fantasy, at the very mm-hmm. least. I haven't read yeah. much into it. That's what it feels like to me just from playing the game. And that's probably very much its origin. I'm sure it is. Could very well be. Mm-hmm. But anyway. But, but I mean, speaking... I mean, in terms of how the theme comes out through the game, you do... I mean, it doesn't feel like you're just playing through the same adventure regardless of the quest because the nemesis action continues to come into play and because the special rules for the quest come out throughout the entire quest like one of my complaints for mistfall was that until you get up to the bad guy you really don't interact at all with your overarching quest there's nothing really going on that changes that really affects the whole quest but here 
you're very much the whole time interacting with the bad guy because he has his nemesis die. The special act, the special rules for the quest continue to take effect from the start until the end. The nemesis track, I'm sorry, the peril track has different effects based upon which quest you're doing. So it means that the whole game, you really feel like you're playing through a story as opposed to, I have to fight a bunch of bad guys and then I get up to the unique story part. It doesn't ever feel like that. Hmm, okay. So it ties the narrative together quite well. I just don't necessarily think the narrative is, you know, it's not compelling fiction type narrative, but it's a narrative nonetheless. Like each, each one of them starts off with a story and I've talked about this poison thing a couple times. So the first quest has poison. And I don't have the game sitting in front of me, but the first quest has has this poison occurring. And you read the story bit, and it says the town of Kathwamp. I think it's like Kathwamp or something like that. <laughs> the town of Kathwamp has been poisoned. Not really knowing what to do with it, they exiled absolutely everyone who is a stranger from the town. But that didn't help anything. So they enlisted you. And you're like, <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> I'll take that. That's fine. <laughs> and like at later points in time, like another bad thing happens. So they decide to catapult all uh, out all the heretics from the town. I'm like, okay. It is silly. It's just a silly game. <laughs> but I mean, none of that, if they're trying to be humorous with that writing, it doesn't come out being humorous. And none of that humorous writing comes out at any of the um, card texts there's for each of the cards usually each of the the guys has a special ability or something or something unique and there's flavor text for all the enemies and there's flavor text for all of the action cards and so the way watcher is the um archer hero and so the flavor text is all written seriously it's describing this clan of way watchers and their connection kinship with these like evil type fairy type things i'm not quite sure what they are but there's like these demon fairies and you know it seems like it's not being written humorously Hmm. but every once in a while it's things like we have no idea what we're doing so we're gonna chunk people out of the city until it fixes it oh that didn't work well (laughs) never mind interesting and so now you say you've played through through three uh Three campaigns already. I've played through the campaign three times, yeah. And okay. one of those times was I played through it once myself, and then I played through it with another group, and then I got the expansion characters, and I did it again with the expansion characters. Um, which I definitely recommend picking up. The game itself is not so expensive. It's like $30, and the expansion characters is $5 each. Oh, wow. So it's it's not an expensive game. There's definitely a lot in here with those quests, a single quest takes about 30 minutes to play. And I found that you get someone sitting down and you play through the first quest. Like, it doesn't take so long. It's only, it's a 30 minute game. It's a 30 minute game. And they sit down and play. Like, okay, I leveled up. I'm ready to do the next quest. <laughs> Let's do the next quest. And so and you do a third one. And I've gotten them hooked each time. At a minimum, they'll play through the first three quests. And like, okay, this was 30 minutes. I'm an hour and a half later. We're going to finish this quest next time, sir. <laughs> and so Funny. that was exactly what happened. Uh, and it's it's a lot of fun. It can really hook you. with. So there's the campaign of five quests that's in there. And then there's the long quest. And the long quest feels like they took four generic quests, 
pushed them into a single quest and didn't add any story or anything to it because you go until you hit the first peril event. Then you get to level up and you continue fighting. You go until you hit the second peril event, then you level up and continue fighting. Then you go until you get the third and you level up and continue fighting. And the fourth and you level up and continue fighting. And then when, it, when you're at the fourth, you can no longer heal. So you better be starting to finish the quest. Hmm, okay. It takes a lot longer. It takes about an hour and a half to two hours to finish that one. Well, each quest. The no, the that is one that is one long quest. The okay. Stan- yeah. The standalone quest takes about an hour and a half to two hours to finish, or at least it did for me. Oh, okay, but it's not part of a campaign. It's not part of the campaign. For the campaign, each quest is about a half hour. The standalone oh, okay. ones, there's six quests in the box. There's the five of the campaign, and there's the standalone one. Okay, and so the standalone quest is, is sort of a mini-campaign. It's sort of a mini-campaign. It's like a very generic campaign, because you're fighting all the nemesis sort of at random. You're going at random through all the enemies, and you're going at random through all the locations. So it lets you have a nice feel to everything. But, I mean, it's at the expense of having no story and the expense of being really long without that convenient pause button after a half hour. For me, I'd rather play a two-and-a-half-hour game split up over a half-hour chunks. That's, mm-hmm. it's, that's more fun to me personally. You get, you get a feeling of the storyline to it, and you get to continue building and leveling up, and you get to take a break when you want. Whereas when you're doing the, the quest one, I end up with a mass of cards sitting out, and I'm an hour into it, and I'm just I'm I'm ready to stop at that point in time. But no, there's still more to do, and I can't really unpack it at that point in time. Mm-hmm, okay, and so so let me ask you about the campaign game. You say you've played it three times. How yeah. different has it felt each time? Not very. I mean, no? the, okay. the difference in it became from using different characters. Mm-hmm. Um, when I'm playing solo, I use only two characters, so I was using a different two characters from each time well the the middle time the second time i was playing with other people i know gasp shock um (laughs) but i was playing with other people so that was a four-player game and then i played with two characters the first and other time i was playing solo the different characters do feel very different like the 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 expansion the witch hunter feels super powerful and super fun because his unique thing is that his um, actions become more powerful based on how many other actions are exhausted. So if you can time an action to be done late, then it's going to be more powerful when you do it. So he'll be having turns where he heals 17 wounds or does like 17 damage. He just does a ridiculous amount of damage. But it takes him a fair amount of setup to get to that stage. But when he gets to it, he has these big turns and it's (laughs) it's a lot of fun to be able to do that kind of stuff. Okay, neat. So the, um, the quests themselves don't feel very different because it's regimented. Most of the enemies you find are set for the quests. There'll, there'll be some random ones in there. But the, it's it's the characters that change things. Mm-hmm. And so when you play a campaign, you stick with the same two, same characters or can you switch it in the middle of the campaign? You cannot switch in the middle of the campaign because they're leveling up as you go through it. Mm. So if you did decide to switch for whatever reason, you'd really hurt yourself. Yeah. Okay. It sounds like a cool game. It sounds like they've taken a lot of different things from lots of different games and put together in a neat way. Mm-hmm. 
And it's relatively simple, right? It's a simple short game. It's it's relatively simple. It's not complicated, but I mean, you've played Descent. Did you find Descent to be particularly complicated? Uh, a little bit. I mean, you know, there's a lot of little pieces to it. Is what it is. Yeah, there's a number of pieces. I mean, it's all in card form here, but there's a number of different things coming into play. So, it I don't I didn't find descent particularly complicated myself. I don't find this one particularly complicated. It's not introductory. It's okay. not like it's it's if you're playing with first time gamers, you'll probably it's a co op game, so you'll be able to help everyone out with that. But I wouldn't be able to keep them let them especially keep up with the strategy of which enemies to attack and how to actually win. You don't need to win the campaign to have fun. I have, in fact, lost twice and won once in the campaign. Um, I don't know what my rating is for the 15 games, the 15 uh, campaign games and the other um, long game I played. I don't remember if I won or lost. But uh, I know that I did not win the, the campaign all three times. So it definitely has some challenge in it. Okay. I don't know how much replayability is going to start suffering, though, because I've played through, like you said, the quest doesn't change. There are some quests available online that, that fans have made. Uh, I've looked over some of them. I'm not a huge fan of the couple I've seen, because the couple I've seen will like change names. It sounds like they're trying to take a different story and flop it into here so like one of them has said oh i'm basing this after this norse mythology and so the troll slayer is going to be named oh jean George, the whatever it is and so that's what it is and so we're playing through this other story here and i'm renaming the characters i'm renaming the things and it, it felt too forced to me it felt too forced to be able to make it fit seamlessly like the original one does I feel like you would need to sort of print custom nemesis cards and print custom... I mean, someone, some kind person in BGG is going through and formatting the quest cards to match the regular formatting, which looks nice and very much appreciate them doing that. But I don't know. I don't like the... I don't like forcing a different story into here. Even if it's a generic story, it doesn't have to be that cool. But I think you would probably have to have a custom nemesis card a custom final location card and custom quest card. And so far I've only seen custom quest cards created, but I would really love to see a big box expansion with new enemies, new quests, new locations. I could really see fantasy flight doing that. I heard nothing about it at all at Gen Con other than I heard from a couple of people who said that fantasy flight made a couple comments not in their um, big meeting, just in their booth. I heard a couple of people say commenting that they're developing an expansion for it. But oh, I would love okay. to see a big box expansion with more quests and more heroes and more things like that. Okay, yeah, it'd be neat. It sounds like a game that could be really expandable and it benefit from that. Yeah, I really think. I mean, I really think it would heavily benefit from having more quests. It's more quests that would really make the gameplay more replayable. I mean. Do you need to have those quests in order to make the game fun? The more quests, I don't really think I need to because if I'm, you know, if I'm playing Castles of Burgundy over and over again, we talked about Stefan Feld earlier. If you're playing Castles of Burgundy, it doesn't change. It's the same thing each time. There's not really much difference in it. 
but there's more skill and there's more use and there's different things you can do. So especially with the different actions that you can do and the different heroes that come out, it's still a lot of fun to play through and I'm probably going to play it a couple more times, you know? So I'm still Mm -hmm. finding it a lot of fun. Replayability I do hear is going to be an issue though, if we can't get more um, expansions, but I would love if more solo people would get the game and tell fantasy flight that we need more expansions. Cause I really want more expansions. <laughs> so there you go. Go out and buy it. So, I mean, it sounds like a cool game. I'd like to play it. Mm-hmm. It does. Um, I also appreciate the two rule book approach that fantasy flight continues to use. I think that they did quite well. They have the learn to play rule book and the reference rule book um, with minor quibbles. There's a couple a couple of things that got left out of the rules reference book and only end up in the learn to learn to play book, but the learn to play was a great way of learning to play and getting started pretty fast. I liked it. Nice. Okay. And I think that they're doing that more and more. So I expect to see that continue. All right. And so that is Warhammer quest. Well, let's talk briefly about another game that I've been playing recently. This one is called the Manhattan project chain reaction. And this is actually a small little game. Um, it comes in just one deck box. Now then, if you would have backed it on Kickstarter and gotten the deluxe version, it would have come in a bigger box and it would have come with some custom wood meeples. I backed it in Kickstarter and I did not get the deluxe edition just because I didn't feel I needed those. And I actually liked having it be small and con- and fit in just one deck box, essentially. So I actually didn't even back into the at the deluxe version, and I don't think you need to back into the deluxe version. Um, I also think that deluxe version bits didn't match the card icons, but we'll get back to that in a second. Um, have you ever played the Manhattan Project? No, I've not. Okay, the Manhattan Project is a game where you're using workers. It's a worker placement game where you're using workers to sabotage your opponent, build bombs, blow stuff up. And then at the end of the games, each of your bombs is worth points, and whoever has most points wins. Manhattan Project condenses that. Um, it's the same theme. You're still going to be building bombs to win the game. But each card has two general uses. A card can be used as workforce, or a card can be used as a location. So the cards will have two ways, as, uh, two ways to hold them. On their left side so you would have to rotate it to see it this way. You can have different people there. So you can have laborers, engineers, and scientists. And if you're using something for labor, you're rotating it on its side, and then those engineers and scientists can be used to power and run buildings. And then there's a bunch of different buildings. And so the buildings will give you resources. So, for example, a mine will take some some amount of workers and get you yellow cake. And yellow cake are these little yellow squares. They look like yellow cubes. If you were using resources, if you're using some other type of resource, you just have yellow cubes for them. Um, the refinery, the refinery, the enrichment plant. Excuse me. The enrichment plant will take scientists and yellow cake and convert that to uranium, which is small little mm-hmm. red circles. The uranium can then be used as bombs. You'll have a row of bomb cards out, and you have to spend then more laborers, more labor force, 
So scientists and engineers in different layouts and different numbers of uranium. So one car may, for example, require two scientists and an engineer and four uranium and give you six points. So you can spend that labor and that uranium to get a bomb. So those are the basic types of buildings that you have. There's also the factory cards. Um, the factory buildings let you either draw cards from the main deck, from the, from the deck of cards, or you can force an opponent to discard cards. Uh, there's a, when you're playing with two players, there are some cards that you're not allowed to use to force an opponent to discard cards. And when you're playing solo, uh, you can, instead of taking cards from the draw pile, you can also take cards from the discard pile. We'll get. Well, that's actually an important thing to think about, and we'll get back to that in a sec. Mm-hmm. Um, the other type, another type of uh, of building, is the university. And the university will take workers of one type and change it into other workers. So, for instance, there's one that takes one scientist and makes three scientists, or there's one that takes two of any type of worker and makes three scientists. So, if you really need to have scientists, and all you have is engineers. You throw two engineers at it, and you get three scientists. And then you can use those three scientists to do two scientists to get some yellow cake, one scientist to turn the yellow cake into uranium, and then use some other engineers to build a bomb. And so you'll run through that all in one turn. And the goal of the game when you're playing multiplayer is to be as efficient with your hand of cards as you want. You start each turn with a hand of five cards. And so you want to figure out, well, how can I use all these five cards the most things fast as I can and get all of my cards out on the table? The game is a race. The first player to get, and these recommend 10 points, but you can increase that if you want a longer game. As soon as a player gets 10 points, the round will finish, everyone gets the same number of turns, and then whoever has the most points wins. And uranium is worth a half a point. Um, so it's very much, in multiplayer, a race to try and be as efficient on your turn as possible. Um, now then, there are a couple extra cards that will come up more rarely. The enrichment plant, the university, the mine, and the factory are the ones that come up the most often. There's a couple outliers. There's landmark cards. Landmark cards are inefficient cards that are always available. They're in the center of the table, so they're not in the deck. And they turn three of anything into one of something. Usually you get two of something into three of something. So these are inefficient ways of getting yellow cake or scientists or engineers if you want to just burn a whole bunch on it. Typically you want to try and work without the landmarks because it's not efficient. The game is all about efficiency. Uh, there is also a design bomb card. And when you get when you use a design bomb card, it doesn't take any labor, although it does have a workforce on it like every other building. Uh, but a design bomb card lets you look at the bomb card deck and select one by yourself. There's also bomb loaded cards, which take two engineers and two scientists. And if you have a bomb worth five points or less, you can increase its the, that bomb's value by two. So it's a good way of getting a little bit of extra points without having to go through the whole yellow cake to uranium um, rigmarole. Mm-hmm. And then the last two types of cards are the espionage card and the double agent card. The espionage card in multiplayer um, lets you either t- steal another player's yellow cake or steal a card from another player's hand. 
The double agent and multiplayer lets you either still know the player's yellow cake or use a landmark without paying its personnel cost. So essentially it's a choice of one thing of your choice when you're doing it that way. If you want to use that, you can always use those for your um, labor instead. Now, all of that was for multiplayer. When you're playing solo, um, you will shuffle up the draw pile and your timer is that draw pile. So as soon as you've gone through the whole draw pile once, usually in multiplayer, you would just reshuffle and keep going until someone gets 10 points. With this one, um, you don't reshuffle it. That ends your game. You finish what cards you have in your hand, and that's it. Game over. Stop. Mm -hmm. Because of that, so there are three cards that do something slightly different. The factory, for example... Um, lets you take from the discard pile, so it extends how long you can use the draw pile for, because then you're not taking cards from the draw pile. The double agent lets you ignore all of the input requirements of the card, including uh, resources like yellow cake. So if you play the one scientist three, the two scientists three yellow cake get five. Uh, five yellow cake get three uranium card you can pair that with a double agent skip the whole yellow cake process and just get three uranium with just two cards which is hugely efficient and then the espionage card is you get to draw three cards put one in your hand and put the rest back on the deck because there's no other player to interact with so then you're just going to be interacting with the deck so essentially you get one more card from the deck um so, are are you following me on the rules so far? Mm-hmm. More or less. Okay. Any questions so far? No. Okay. That is the extent of the rules. It's a pretty small, uh, quick game. A single game has been taking me like 15, 20 minutes. It's not ta- it doesn't take very long. It's a small, quick game. The multiplayer is a lot of fun. I uh, Playing the quick game, it's, a, it's an excellent filler um, game, which means that it's, uh, you know... Something if you're trying to wait for other people to arrive or something like that. It's a nice, short, quick game. A lot of fun trying to be as efficient with your hand as possible and just racing people to do it. It reminds me a lot of Harbor, if you've ever played that one. Where with Harbor, mm-hmm. again, you were trying to be very efficient with your actions to get resources as much as you can and see how to plot and plan. This one doesn't require as much plotting long t- long term because you only have the one five-card hand that you have to plot and plan for. Once you've done that plotting, um, you get a new hand of cards. So it doesn't require as much long-term strategy, just you know, only five cards long. But it's still all about being efficient, and I like that efficiency race, especially when it only takes 15 minutes to do. It's a lot. It, that's a lot of fun. Um, for Solitaire, I've been finding it to be an okay game, and I, I think that it's possible that some house ruling, and I've already been doing some house ruling for it, might take away some of that. The Solitaire game has a very different strategy than the main game. Because in the main game, you're always wanting to use your entire hand as much as possible. Whenever you finish a turn, you don't have to discard the cards that you were holding on to. You can hold on to them till later. In the main game, you want to try and use up all five of your cards because cards is an unlimited resource. You can always get five more cards. So if you can use it now, it's better to do so. Mm-hmm. With solo play, there's no reason to do that because cards is a limited resource. You want to get everything you can out of every one of the cards. So for instance, if there's a card that lets you use two scientists, 
and you only have cards that use one scientist, you probably don't want to play those together because essentially you're wasting a scientist. So you want to hold on to your cards and go slower. So the whole game starts going a lot slower because Mm -hmm. you're not rushing to be efficient. In fact, usually when you're playing solo, when you're playing multiplayer, you may have a chain reaction where you do where it gets your turn. You're like, okay, I'm going to do this, which lets me 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 do this. And it's like, wow, that is an awesome turn. You did like six, seven things. Wow. So cool. What a chain reaction name drop for the name (laughs) of the game with solo play. Even if you see all of those, it's probably better to do one of them, hold on to the rest of the cards and just wait. If you can, I mean, assuming you're not burning any resources doing that, just wait because there's nothing pushing you to do it all at once. And who knows, maybe you'll get a different set of cards that might be even better, or that might give you something more to think about. So there's no reason to rush and do a whole cool chain reaction. There is never in solo play a chain reaction. It just doesn't happen. (laughs) Yeah, it's not worth it. I mean, you want to slow down. You don't want to go through that deck. Right, you don't want to go through the deck. So you're always trying to make sure that each card is being used optimally. So there's no there's no rush to do it. Um, I also think that some of the changes they made for solo play mean that there are some cards, and I already mentioned it, like the double agent, which are much more efficient than everything else. So for instance, the double agent, it's it plus another card means that you have three uranium for two cards instead of having to get five yellow cake from using multiple mines, which is usually another four or five cards to do that, plus using more scientists to then do it. So that's usually to get three uranium is going to be seven to nine cards. Double agent plus that one enrichment factory, uh, enrichment plant, is two cards for three uranium. That's Hmm. very efficient. Mm Mm-hmm. And because the factory allows you to get from the draw piles, they have a rule that you can't use a factory to get another factory. Okay. But I can use a factory to get back the double agent to the enrichment plant, like over and over again. So if I start the game, and I've seen this before, if I start the game with a double agent and that one enrichment factory, and each time I use a factory, I'm going to go get that again. So that's four cards to get three uranium. That's pretty good. Yeah. That's pretty good. That's a very good return. To me, from having played this now, I don't know how many times, that feels game-breaking to me. I've tried Mm -hmm. to see... I mean, I'm not scoring great scores. I don't know if that's because I'm not awesome at the game, but even when I'm trying to ignore that strategy... I'm not scoring nearly as well as when if I if I stack the deck just to see what happens and I put my first two cards being that enrichment plant and that double agent, I score better. If I just keep nailing that strategy and just playing like that, I score better because it is very efficient. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's that, almost game breaking. Yeah. But, you know, that that means if you really just need to feel good about yourself, set it up that way and play and get a great score. Well, but I'd rather I'd rather not just have the game be like, oh, well, did I get the double agent in that enrichment factory? Mm-hmm. So what I've been doing is that normally the double agent doesn't let you ignore um, 
personnel cost. Uh, it doesn't let you ignore resource costs. So, for instance, normally the double agent is you can activate any landmark card, but you still have to pay yellow cake costs. And it doesn't let you work on your own cards. So my personal house rule has just been, well, ignore the solo play rules for the double agent. The double agent works in solo just like it does in multiplayer. And that whole thing just becomes a moot point. It really just drops away. Mm-hmm. Yep. But that doesn't really alleviate for me the fact that what drew me to the game was the chain reaction. That fast, boom, boom, boom. I'm so efficient. I did like six things. And when I'm playing multiplayer and I have the chance to be like, guys, watch this. And I throw down my hand and I do like six things with five cards. Or you have other people who have like, I got four factories. I'm going to throw out all these factories. I get like nine cards now instead of five. I use these nine cards to do this, this, this. I loaded, I, I made a bomb. I loaded it. I've got six points all in one turn. I start from nothing. I'm done. And when you get those turns, it just feels amazing. I never mm-hmm. feel amazing in a turn playing solo play. It may be that if I finish solo play and I look at it, I'm like, oh, look, I got like 26 points. That's pretty good. I don't think I'm going to feel amazing, even if I do it, because I feel amazing when I play those turns, those turns that are incredible. Having a great score, to me, just doesn't do it nearly as much. It's too abstract, and it doesn't give me that great feeling. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like th- this game's just not as big a hit solo as Warhammer. It's it's not as big a hit solo. It's it's a pretty big hit multiplayer though. Um, for being a filler, Warhammer Quest is not a filler. But for a light filler game, I'm a fan of Harbor also. Um, so I like these small games of efficiency, this race. Another player said it reminded him of a race for the galaxy where you're always trying to be as efficient as you can. I like how the cards have the dual use where it can either be a building or a labor. And so you're having to decide, well, do I want it for this? Or I want it for this? Because often you're like, well, if I use it for this, then I can do this. And you get up and you have a whole plan. You're like, oh, shoot, I already used that card for labor earlier on in this chain and so now i can't use it for the building action so that whole chain reaction just falls apart and that to me is fun and i like having that rush and that that rush of feeling as i'm going through it i just didn't get it from the solo play then i will stay away from this one i think fair enough i don't i don't know that yeah i don't think i'd get to play much multiplayer might be fun but yeah i mean it's it i'm i'm (sighs) It's not a bad game, especially... I mean, in my opinion, you you kind of need to have that double agent rule to prevent it from being repetitive. It's mm-hmm. not a bad game. It just doesn't feel as fun solo. And that's only for me. That that really requires that you like that rush of having a fun turn that does so many things in one turn. If you would get a joy out of looking at it and being like, oh, wow, I got like a 26. That's an awesome score. If that gives you a lot of fun, you may like this. Mm-hmm. It's just not me. Okay. All right. So that's Manhattan Project. Chain okay. reaction. Cool. Thank you. I've forgotten about this game. I remember it being on Kickstarter. I think I mentioned it was on Kickstarter. I know that their next Manhattan Project, Energy Empire, they've said is going to include a solo version. Oh. Um. I mean, I'm I'm definitely going to be looking into it because I like Manhattan Project. I like this game. 
I think that they changed too. The, there was too big of a change between the multiplayer to the solo solitaire that turned it off for me. But I'm definitely going to be looking into Energy Empire because that one looks pretty cool to me too. And if they can if they can keep the feeling between the two, I will be a lot more interested in that one. Okay, is this one also a card game? Uh, Energy Empire? No, that's yes. that's a that's a bigger box game. I hadn't heard about that one. Is that going to be on Kickstarter? Also, do you know? It already was on Kickstarter. Oh, was it? Oh, yeah. They just didn't they didn't do the solitaire rules until after the Kickstarter. Oh, okay. That's why I missed it. They took extra time to develop it, which I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Means definitely. it turns out to be good. So, any questions, Albert? Did that uh, all good to you? Yep, that's all good to me. Thank you. No, no, no Albert. No, Albert. Albert, well, are there any questions, Albert? <laughs> you know, I've got one question. Oh, yeah, got, what is it? Yeah. The, the, the way you describe the game, it's, it's just not there. It, but I don't know. What's it missing? Yay, Albert got the subtle clues. <laughs> I know. I get the slap on the head when I miss a subtle clue. <laughs> All right. As with every time, we got to figure out what's it missing. Um, now that we've done two games this time, I think we should probably do what's it missing for Warhammer Quest. That'd probably be more fun. Okay. We could do that. And you know what? I now have dice to give away again, which actually reminds me I need to go back and... and Send some dice to previous winners. So last time on the Great Debate, right? Chris and Julius talked about a uh, debated about what Samurai Spirit was missing. Now Chris strongly felt that this game needed more popsicles. You, on the other hand, thought it needed a uh, period costumes. And well, the 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 listeners voted, and I'm afraid Julius they sided with Chris. They like popsicles. Not a shock. That was a tough one to do. <laughs> that was, yeah, you know, it, it's hard to beat ice cream and popsicles. It just is, no matter what you argue. Yeah, says the man who backed the ice cream game. <laughs> See? See? Uh, I lost again. <laughs> oh, well. I guess that means that you get uh, first pick here, Albert. Do you want to go first or second? Um, I picked, I picked first. You want to go first? Yep. All I'll right. go first. So this week, um, we're talking about what Warhammer Quest needs. <laughs> All right. Well, Albert, um, by random choice, you are, and your submission is coming from Jason Clark, you apparently think that Warhammer Quest needs dust bunnies. D- yes, it does need dust bunnies. Dust bunnies. <laughs> and mine is coming from Lynn, and I apparently think that it needs Boy Scouts. <laughs> Boy Scouts. Boy Scouts. Boy Scouts. Uh, <laughs> well, one of us is right. <laughs> one of us is right. Oh, boy. Do, 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 do you have your timer? Ready, set, go. So this game needs more dust bunnies. The thing is, there's already so much going on, and this game is so intense. You need to, once in a while, just have this random tumbleweed come along and just... Make you say what? And you don't want real tumbleweed because that'd be Western. So you want dust bunnies. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> just 
so terrible. I'm surprised oh you didn't go with like giant mutated dust bunnies attacking you. It doesn't need that. <laughs> it do- it doesn't just that wouldn't make any sense. Alrighty. Anyway, um, so in my opinion, it needs Boy Scouts because every campaign needs a general store in the middle of the campaign that you can quickly get to. It's, you know, you may have to teleport back to it, but in this one. It's politely served Boy Scouts coming to your place with like a little cart, a red fire truck um, cart coming along and selling you any goods that you need because they're happy Boy Scouts, happy to help out. Stop. <laughs> and your rebuttal, sir. Top that. Yeah, yeah. Boy Scouts are just not fantasy. It just doesn't fit the theme. It doesn't fit the theme. <laughs> Good rebuttal, well, sir. <laughs> thank you. Nothing uh, like we already threw them over a catapult outside <laughs> the walls when we figured out that they were poisoning us. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that with the theme of Warhammer being what it is, it may very well fit the theme. Well, I, I thought that was heretics that were throwing over, not Boy Scouts. I, should, <laughs> I don't know. Heretical Boy Scouts. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I think probably in the world of Warhammer, Boy Scouts would be heretical. <laughs> See? Ah, Warhammer. <laughs> I can't do that anymore. I've lost my voice. Darn. Good. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Evan, for listening. Yep. Have, have a good time and hear from you in a couple weeks. And don't forget to send me a haiku, please. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks for listening. We love feedback, so we love hearing from you. You can reach me at Julius at OnePlayerPodcast.com or JLBird on BGG. And Albert can be reached at Albert at OnePlayerPodcast.com or Fractaloon on BGG. Our website is OnePlayerPodcast.com with the number one, and we're also on Twitter at OnePlayerPodcast. The intro music is copyright Angus, can be found at Gemendo.com. The transition music is copyright by Dan Elduce Pancaldi, whose page is at DanPancaldi.com. The One Player Podcast is protected under a Creative Commons share-alike license. Thanks for listening.